If you want to take out your Bibles tonight as we begin and turn to the book of Acts, that'd be a great idea, great place to start. When we began this year, kind of adopted the theme of SOS in 2019, Save One Soul in 2019. In the latter part of last year, since my arrival here on November the 11th, even into the first part of this year, we talked about in a series of lessons how we were saved to serve and how evangelism is a very key part of that serving that we were saved to do, how evangelism has to do with the very reason that we exist as a body, as a church, to join Jesus in that great commission, as it were, of seeking and saving the lost. It's now the last Sunday of April, and although we haven't seen any conversions yet, I'm so grateful for all of the support, all of the awareness of this effort. I've heard this idea expressed from prayers in front of the building, the bulletin logo that is still in there in the bottom left corner of, of this week's bulletin. It has been in the bulletin now ever since the beginning of the year. Several comments and conversations and all of these things, and especially some of the sermons and devotionals that have come from other men of the congregation. I, I really appreciate the fact that we're all more aware and, and trying to really look for those opportunities to reach out and save one soul in 2019 and how this has become sort of a, not just a theme and an idea, but it's become something that a lot of people are, are really putting to the forefront. And of course, it's not about what I appreciate, but I'm sure that the Lord loves and appreciates that too, because that's one of the major reasons that the church exists. Back when I began was put in the bulletin, that little green banner, SOS in 2019, that's been in all of the bulletins. Now, after something's been in there for a while, we kind of have the, kind of have the uh, practice of overlooking it when you see the same thing week after week after week. Please don't overlook that little banner. You'll recall that there's also a scripture reference listed with it. It's Acts 8, 26 through 39. And there was a reason that I chose that specific example of conversion when it comes to saving one soul. And I'm going to go over some of those reasons tonight. We're going to talk about save one soul in 2019, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. But if we're going to profit from the full account, we can't begin in Acts 8. We have to go back to the beginning in Acts chapter 6. It is in Acts chapter 6 that we first see Philip, the evangelist, as he is later referred to in Acts 21 and verse 8. And, and I know this is a familiar story to all of us, and I, I know that some of the classes with some of our younger folks have gone over or are going over the book of Acts, but I hope to maybe point out some things tonight, hopefully, hopefully, that you might not have thought of before or maybe seen quite that way. We talk about this. Now, first off, this being Philip the Evangelist, as he's referred to in Acts 21 8, this is not Philip the Apostle. It's not Philip the Apostle that we see in the Gospel accounts, especially the Gospel according to John. Two different individuals. I want to begin in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. 
talking about, yes, the Ethiopian eunuch, because there's a lot that goes into this before we get to him. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, I want to stop right there. They weren't just adding to the church. It wasn't just increasing. They were multiplying. That means even faster than adding. <coughs> multiplying. Why was the church multiplying? I'll tell you why the church here in Acts 6, in verse 1, was multiplying. Look at chapter 5 and verse 42. Here's why they were multiplying. Remember, this wasn't broken up into chapters and verses when this was written. Acts 5, 42, in daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Jesus is the Christ. Now, people may have been known to say over the years, well, do I have to go to church twice on Sunday? Do I have to back Wednesday night? The answer is, the first century church was multiplying because they were together all the time. Daily, they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. That's why, Acts 6, 1, in those days, the number of the disciples was multiplying. Because they were spreading the word everywhere all the time. When that was happening, Acts 6, verse 1, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. A lot of wisdom here. Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Notice what these men were. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles were going to keep preaching. And so they wanted the congregation to select seven men. Seven men that were that had these qualities and these Christian traits about them. Verse 5, the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip, who's going to be our kind of key character here tonight, or one of them. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, if we were to read the rest of chapter 6 and on into chapter 7, we would see that one of those men, Stephen, who was chosen, along with Philip and these others, right here in Acts chapter 6 at the beginning, we would see that Stephen goes on to preach, preach the truth, be mercilessly martyred, to be killed for it. After he preaches the truth and he's killed, look what happens in Acts 8. In verse 1, Stephen was killed and Saul was consenting, Acts 8, 1, to his death. At that time, a great persecution, not just a persecution, but a great persecution, arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. A great persecution, a life-and-death persecution broke out against the church. And the church members were scattered. They had to run for their lives. Verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The reason that I actually began in chapter 6 
But because I want us to just stop and consider for a moment the deadly persecution that happened right there. I want us to consider the devastation and the deadly persecution which Philip had been forced to endure long before God ever said, go to the eunuch. Because that's important. It's important to know what Philip had come out of. Philip has just seen the death of one of his closest co-workers in the kingdom. One of those men who was chosen right alongside of him from the same congregation. This man who was wise and faithful and full of the Holy Spirit. This man, Stephen, who was chosen with Philip. Both of them were chosen by their congregation. They were recognized by their home congregation in Jerusalem as being good, solid Christian men and having these characteristics. And then, not only were they chosen by their home congregation, but the elders approved of them, the, I'm sorry, the apostles approved of them as well to work side by side in what we would might consider to be the role of a deacon to some degree. You know, as I thought of this, I couldn't help but think maybe of, of Kirk and Eric. Deacons, working together with the youth. They're close. They've got each other's back. When we go to Tri-State, they work together. They work as a team. They work in unison. They are deacons. They, they deal with the youth a lot between the two of them. Imagine if they were selected by the elders for this mission to go out, and one of them was killed. No disrespect to either one of you, gentlemen. I'm just trying to find something that fit. you got to understand, Stephen and Philip were part of... The, these were not guys that didn't know each other. They were selected by the same congregation for this role, this work, in Acts 6. They were close. Now one of them's dead. And I want you to notice in verse 2 of Acts 8 the word devout, where it says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial. That word devout, that Greek word means pious, reverencing God careful as to the realization of the presence and claims of God. According to the Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words, that's what that word devout means. You know, as I read that, as I read how these devout men, these men of incredible Christian character who recognized who God was, these devout men, they went out and they buried Stephen. As I stop and think about that word devout, I look back to Acts 6 and I think, well, devout would also fit the qualities of those men chosen, right? Including Philip, who was a man full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit as well. Philip was a devout man as well. There is at least a good possibility. The scripture doesn't say this, but you've got you to gotta stop and think. When it says devout man carried Stephen to his burial, one of those devout men may very well have been Philip was a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, devout as it were. It's very possible that Philip was one of them who made lamentations. But whether or not Philip was one of those men who carried Stephen to his burial, we do know for sure based on the scripture that Philip was one of those who was scattered. 
don't know if he's one to help bury Stephen, but he was certainly one of those who was scattered when this great persecution broke out. Had to basically run for his life. Because Saul was wreaking havoc upon his home congregation. That's what we see in Acts 8 and verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so like Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Philip has to flee and run for his life, pretty much. So why do I bring all that up? The reason I bring all of this up in, in reference to the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch is how often do we maybe fall into the trap, or at least tempted to think, or even say to ourselves, well, you know what? I'm too busy with my own life and my own struggles and my own problems, as well as just being overwhelmed with my home congregation's issues to even consider talking to anybody else about Jesus. Right? I want us to understand, Philip could have said that. Philip had some heartbreaking issues going on with the death of Stephen. Had to flee from his home and his home congregation, and he gets down to Samaria. How often do we again get tempted to say, you know what, my life's too hard, and the church has got its struggles, and so on and so forth, and, and you know what, I just can't go tell anybody else about Jesus, but that's not at all what Philip did. Look at Acts 8, verses 4 and 5. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They're running for their lives because they're Christians and because of the truth. And what are they doing all along the way? Telling everybody else they can about Jesus, how awesome he is. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He was really quiet because he didn't want to get persecuted again. No, that's not what it says. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. He has a very successful campaign down there in Samaria. This very successful evangelistic campaign caused multitudes of both men and women to hear, believe, and obey the gospel. We read that down there in verse 12. Despite the persecution that got him back in Jerusalem, what's he doing in Samaria? He didn't stop because of the personal cost in his prior place. And so, after he gets down and he preaches that and a lot of folks are converted, look what God tells him to do in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Get this picture in your mind. We talked about saving one soul. Don't, don't miss this. After all the death and the havoc that he had seen in Jerusalem, all of the deadly persecution that he was forced to flee in Jerusalem due to, including the death of Stephen, who was chosen along with him, Philip had gone to Samaria. He preached the gospel. He converted a lot of folks to Christ established a congregation, and more than likely, he had begun to get settled in and a little bit more comfortable down there as their preacher. I mean, he's got a congregation where men and women are being converted. He's preaching the gospel, and there they are. And you've got this congregation down there. And, and, you know, he's probably getting a little settled in, and people are listening, and he's making progress, and that's great for all preachers. What does God say? 
Philip? Can't say there. He says, go, Philip. God says not only for Philip to go and leave that comfortable place, possibly comfortable place, but this journey from where he was in Samaria, according to the references that I have read, this place in Samaria to the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, the place that God told him to go, was approximately 60 to 70 miles, according to commentators. 60 to 70. He couldn't go out and, you know, jump in his late model air conditioned, you know, 60 to 70 miles if he's walking. It's going to take him three or four days on foot, 20 miles a day. That's how far it is. Down to that road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Your region referred to as desert. Doesn't necessarily mean it was dry like we think of a desert. It could, but it could also simply mean sparsely inhabited wasteland. Either way you look at it, it was a difficult road. Perhaps a dry and thirsty land. It was a way less traveled. Point is, it wasn't going to be easy. If I'm Philip, and I got this congregation comfortable with things are going good. People listen. Gospel. God comes along, God says, I got a rough road I want you to go down. That's about what happened to Philip. So when God comes along and says, I got something I want you to do, I know you're comfortable, but I got this difficult road, this, because the Bible specifically says, this is desert, at the tail end of verse 26. No matter how you look, it's not comfortable, it's not convenient. Especially after the good reputation and the great following he seems to be developing in Samaria. But what do you do when God says that? You remember the story in the Gospel accounts where Jesus talks about what shepherd? He's got 99 sheep, and they're there, and they're comfortable, and the one sheep is off into the wilderness. What did he say? Don't you leave the 99 there, and you go after the one? Don't you take the difficult road, and you chase after the one? Isn't the one that important? Well, in this case, God was letting Philip know that he had something important for him to do to go after that, guess what, one soul. Leave the rest. Save that one soul. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's desert road. But if God says that, what do you do? I love verse 27. So he arose and went. No excuses. No hesitation. No, God, you know, I really got it good right here. You know, after all I've seen in Jerusalem, I got it really good in Samaria. Can I please say, God said, I want you to go. This is desert. And he arose and went. No hesitation. Behold, the man of Ethiopia, the eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all the treasury, had come to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, to worship. Was returning, sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. This eunuch had traveled hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. More than likely alone, he may have had a charioteer or a driver, but we don't know that. Scripture certainly doesn't say that he did. More than likely, he was alone, traveling hundreds of miles in a chariot. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. 
Picture what you know of a chariot. Not the old west where they had carriages with seats. What do you know about chariots? Chariots didn't have seats. They weren't buggies. Chariots, what did you do? You stood in chariots, right? Can you imagine standing in a chariot for hundreds of miles through this type of region, a lot of it, with this horse that's just, or, or whatever he's got, horses certainly, trotting up all this dust, standing, just some bus when it, ever happened to you, you ride for hours and like your legs get cramped and your knees, when you got to walk, you know, it's like, wow, I gotta get my land legs back, standing. And I also did a little bit of research and I found out that most Roman chariots of that day, or, or sorry, most chariots of that day, Egyptian chariots, you know what they had for floors in them? Rope, like rope netting. Not hard floors, rope Can you imagine standing on rope netting and going hundreds of miles? This guy was committed. This guy was convicted of what he believed. And the thing was, was that once he got to Jerusalem to worship, he couldn't even go in. Because he was a eunuch, Deuteronomy 23 in verse 1. Wow. This would be the equivalent of us taking time off to travel thousands of miles to and through a third world country in some of their modes of transportation. Ever been to a third world country in some of that transportation, right? To attend a service within a fenced-in compound where we couldn't even go through the gate once we got there. That would be the equivalent of what the Ethiopian eunuch has done. Some people complain today because the ride to the church building is eight minutes. Now, the point of all of this is this man was extremely devoted, this eunuch, and he was completely committed as a religious man, but he wasn't saved yet. Do you see that? He was a convicted, completely religious, zealous man to go that far under those conditions. To be able to go to this place, he can't even get into worship once he gets there. Think of the conviction that took, but he still wasn't saved despite how zealously religious he may have been. Maybe at this point, as we get ready to read verse 29, maybe he was taking a break by the side of the road. Maybe he was sitting. But if he was sitting, it would be up on the lip of the chariot or, or maybe sitting on the rope floor with his feet stretched out behind it as he stopped here along this road or whatever it was, reading Isaiah the prophet. Get a picture of that in your mind. Now, it's possible because of the wording that we're about to read where God says go up and overtake the chariot. It's entirely possible Bible's not real clear, but it's possible the chariot was moving, and then he was kind of sitting on the edge of it, and the horse was kind of walking, and it was kind of... But can you imagine, how many of you get a headache when you ride and read? Hopefully not while you ride. Can you imagine being in a rickety chariot, sitting on the lip of a chariot, if this thing is moving, trying to read a scroll of Isaiah the prophet? Bottom line is, I don't know if the chariot was still or if the horses were just kind of plodding along. All I know is that this is what I read next. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. The word overtake suggests it might have been moving, but we don't know. 
So Philip, don't miss this word. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, here's a good word. So Philip ran to him. He ran to him. And he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and he said, do you understand what you're reading? The first thing I want for us to notice is when God says go, verse 29, Philip ran, verse 30. Don't miss that. When God said go, Philip ran. And just said, oh, man, I've tried this before. I've tried converting people before. Do you remember what happened to Stephen? Stephen tried it. It didn't work. I tried all this. Why? Lord, you really think this is necessary? We can't do this. We've already tried this once. Is that what he said? God says go. Philip took off. He probably won't be very successful. He's tried this before, right? Philip ran. Just like the father in the story of the prodigal son ran to his once erring but now returning son, Luke 15, 20. Philip ran, just like the jailer ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16 and verse 29? Philip ran, just like the father ran, just like the jailer ran. You know why? Because souls are that important. Eternal souls are important enough to run after. The second thing that I would like to notice in verses 29 to 30 is this. You've heard this more than once. Add tonight to the list. Good teachers ask questions. Here we see it again. You heard him reading the prophet Isaiah in verse 30, and the very first thing Philip does is says, you understand what you're reading? <coughs> the teachers ask questions. Questions are non-confrontational. Questions are less aggressive than assertions. <coughs> questions invite invitations. In fact, questions lead to the unsaved accepting the invitation to come to Jesus and be saved. And that's what we're going to see. Look in verses 31 and following. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Place the scripture, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip. He answered Philip because Philip asked him a question. Good teachers ask questions. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom did the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? This leads us to what, for me, is the key verse in this entire story. The most important and relevant point that we can take from this lesson for successful evangelism today, as far as I am concerned, I wrote it in the opening chapter of that book out there, Effective Everyday Evangelism, I wrote this. As the unit set reading from his quite possibly recently purchased in Jerusalem copy of the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, the Bible says in verse 35 that, 
Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Did you catch that? I am completely convinced that that's the key to successful evangelism. We've got to take people from where they're at. How many times do we get in a discussion? Somebody brings up a question, and the first thing we want to tell them about is baptism. The first thing we want, and, and it's not that we don't have the right desire. We want to see them saved, absolutely, but, but we've got to take them from where they're at. We've got to look at what they're interested in biblically, where they're at, those things that matter to them biblically. And that's where we've got to start. Because if we start over there, even if it is vital and essential to saving them, but we start over in that section of Scripture and they don't care, what are they going to do? They're going to flip the switches off. That's the end of that. So we've got to take them. Philip said, now the Bible says, beginning with that very Scripture. What did he do? He taught him Jesus. And look what happens next. Verses 36 and 7. As they went down the road, they came some water. And he had said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Can you imagine, just think of this for a minute, and this is maybe something we typically tie into this, but the eunuch has been all those miles through all those hardships to go to a place that he can't even get inside the gate to worship pretty much. He can't go in because he's a eunuch. So as Philip comes along and, comes along and explains Jesus to him, and he understands that he, he can get inside the spiritual gate to heaven itself through Christ, I don't think they were going down the road and come to this water and say, hey, look, there's water. Can I have that? I think this unit's probably hopping up and down pretty much at this point. He's so he can be part of the inner group. Hey, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Can, I can be baptized. I can be saved. I can actually be, be entering the holiest of holies or, or however Philip had explained it to him through Jesus. But here's the thing. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch believes with all his heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But here's the thing we need to remember to let some of our religious friends and neighbors know, who may be very zealous for their own religion. Even though the eunuch believes with all his heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, he said that right there in verse 37. Even though he believed that, He's not saved yet. How do I know that? Because if belief alone is enough to save, then even the demons are saved, as we talked about this morning, James 2.19. Because if belief alone is enough to save, then King Agrippa would have already been a Christian, which he wasn't, as we discussed from Acts 26 in this morning's sermon. I know that the eunuch is not saved even though that he believes with all his heart that Jesus is the Son of God because if belief alone were enough to save, then that would completely contradict James 2.24 which says man is not saved by faith only. I know that despite his belief that he wasn't saved because if belief alone was enough to save, then the people in Acts chapter 2 when they believed Peter's message and they were cut to the heart in verse 37, would have been saved at that point, but they weren't saved at that point until after they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins in verse 41. Even though they believed Peter's message and they believed the words that he exhorted them with, 
They weren't saved until their sins were washed away. I know that the eunuch, despite his belief with all his heart, still wasn't saved because if belief alone was enough to save, the Apostle Paul would have been saved on the way into Damascus. Rather than three days later, after prayer, still needing to have his sins washed away, Acts 22, 16, I know that the eunuch, despite believing with all his heart in Jesus as the Son of God, still wasn't saved because if belief alone was enough to save that would completely contradict Peter. When he said in 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism now saves you. And I know the eunuch was not saved. Despite believing in his heart, Jesus was the Son of God. Because if belief alone was enough to save, then that would contradict Jesus Christ our Lord, who said in Mark 16 and verse 16, He who believes and is baptized. Don't get me wrong. Believing in Jesus with all of your heart is absolutely essential to being saved. It is totally mandatory as a biblical requirement in order for one to be saved. If you do not believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you can't be saved. It is essential that you do that. But here's the thing. That's not the only essential thing to be saved. That is the foundational essential thing to be saved, which should lead you to the next thing which is just as essential in order to be saved. And that, or one of those mandatory biblical requirements in order for one to be saved that is every inch as important and essential as belief is that one repents and is baptized specifically for the forgiveness of their sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. In other words, belief in the gospel message with all your heart, even though it's essential, is not the be-all and end-all of the salvation process. It doesn't complete the process. It's simply one essential step necessary to get to the next one. Let me give you an illustration. Why don't you think for a minute of Noah and the ark? Put a picture in your mind of the framework of the ark. You, you've all seen a house being constructed, the two before, the two sixes up, but there's no sheathing, there's nothing, I mean, you can walk right, you walk through walls, right? I mean, it's just, just the framework, the skeleton. Think of the ark for a moment. Think of the ark being built in such a way that the framework is up, kind of the, the front end with the curved wood and, and kind of the ribs and the structure is up like this, but it's just the framework. Let me ask you a question. Is that framework absolutely essential to completing that ark? Sure it is, because you can't, put the outer planks on the thin air. They've got to have something to mount to, right? But here's the deal. Would that framework, skeleton, just the ribs of the boat and the transom down the middle, would that have floated and saved all those animals? Wouldn't have done it, would it? So while it was an essential element in the construction of the ark, it wasn't the be-all and end-all. What else did they need to do? Well, they needed to put on the sheathing, right? Like you put around a house. They needed to put the outside walls on. Were those essential? Yeah, you can't float a skeleton. <laughs> Certainly can't put animals in it, right? I want us to think of this. Belief in Jesus Christ as the son of the living God, which the unit did, that's like that skeletal framework of the ark. It's absolutely essential. You can't have an ark without it. That's not the whole ark. <clears throat> what that skeleton leads you to is something to put the sheathing on so that you can get in it and be saved. But you're going to have the sheathing too. The sheathing is essential. But you hook that to the skeleton of the boat. 
framework, structure. Framework is like our belief. Sheathing is like baptism. One allows the other, and both are essential. In our story in Acts 8, now that the essential framework of belief in Jesus as the Son of God is in place, right there in verses 36 and 7, it's time for the eunuch to complete the process and actually get his sins forgiven by submitting to the other also biblically required elements of baptism for the forgiveness of his sins, which is exactly what he does. Verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Notice, as we always point out, they go down into, they come up out of. Baptism is a burial. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. But here's the deal. Look what happens after. They went down into the water, and he baptized in verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord talked Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. But he went on his way, what? Rejoicing. Why? Because he knows now his belief that was absolutely essential led him to baptism, which was absolutely essential, which he submitted to. He got the full, the full thing in place. The sheathing was put on the skeleton. One thing led to the next, and now he knows he's saved. This is the same thing that happened to the jailer in Acts chapter 16, 30 through 34. Rushes in, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul tells him he's got to believe on the Lord. The jailer takes them out that night, washes their wounds, and he and his whole household listen what to do to be saved. They get baptized, and guess what? They rejoice. Because they know their sins are forgiven. As we get ready to conclude tonight, here's what I would like for us to be thinking about. If we're going to save one soul, 2019, each of us, we must be ready and willing as Philip was. Speaking of Philip, despite the problems in his own life, despite running for his life, and despite the devastation in his own home congregation, despite the likely convenience and comfort and congregation that he had more than likely settled into in Samaria, despite all of those things, when God said, go, Philip ran to obey him. God has told you and I to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know where the world begins? Next door to your house. You have a world and I have a world. Our world is those people that we know that are not Christians. Doesn't matter, as I said early on, either at the beginning of this year or end of last year, it doesn't matter if you're a 15-year-old Christian or you're a 100-year-old Christian. Going in all the world begins that right next door. The people you go to class with, the people you associate with, that's where the world starts. Philip. Also, please notice from this story, was not intimidated, and sometimes we are by the fact this man was highly religious. Sometimes we'll say, well, that person's been a you know, member of this denomination or that denomination. They're like fourth generation. You ain't going to dislodge them. Au contraire. This eunuch was pretty serious about his convictions, wasn't he? 
How do you like travel hundreds of miles in an open chair if you go someplace you can't even get into? The fact is that when people are seeking God, even if they're being mistaught and misled, they're still trying, most of them, many of them, to find God, and, and we have the right route to get there. And so don't let the fact that somebody has always been a member of this church or that church scare you away. Do you know that most of the conversions in the book of Acts were people who were already seriously religious in other areas? Did you know that? <coughs> they had Pentecost. Jews. 3,000 of them converted. They were Jewish. They were converted to Christianity. Stop and think about all the examples. I won't go through them all, but stop and think about them. This guy and so many others. Most of them were people that were already religious. And finally, number three, as Philip approached, he asked the question, when he was questioned in return, he started with that very verse of scripture and taught him Jesus. Tonight, there should be no question as to what we need to do with this message. And next week and the weeks after, when you see that little SOS in 2019 and at eight, Acts 8, 26 through 39, hopefully you'll remember some of the things from this lesson. We know what we need to do. question is, tomorrow when we meet those unsaved people, what are we going to do with it? If you're here tonight... On the other hand, and you're not a Christian, we don't have to wonder where the water is. It's right there. <laughs> we don't have to go along and say, hey, where's the water? Or here's the water. The water's there. If you've not been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, you can do that tonight. If we stand and sing, and if you've already done that, you just need prayers to be stronger, to tell other people, and to be more like Philip. We offer that as well. We can pray for you, whatever you need tonight, as we stand and sing the invitation.